Hello, welcome back to my podcast. You may or may not have noticed that this is labelled as Series 2, Episode 1. Now, Series 1 is continuing along in much the same way it has been for a while, but I am running Series 2 concurrently. The reason is that Series 2 is going to be quite different to Series 1, whereas Series 1 is me finding people I think are interesting, exploring conversation with them, highlighting issues I think need to be kind of looked at a bit closer. Series 2 is very different. Essentially, Series 2 is me reading a novel for you. I've written this novel. It's kind of in its second, possibly third draft, and it's called Love and Haste, and I started writing it alarmingly ten years ago. This came off the back of writing another novel called Getting It. Now, I got fairly close to the end, maybe 5,000 words from the end of the novel, and then something quite significant happened in my life. I became a father. And before I became a parent, I very uh, foolishly thought, well, you know, I can carry on with the book, it's it's just a book, it's just writing. Because the first book I'd kind of spent hours, and more hours than you could, if, unless you've written a book, more hours than you could, could possibly believe, just pontificating and writing and thinking and being a generally a bit of a, a flouncy kind of author. Now, my daughter's nine years old now, and I still haven't written those last 9,000 words. So I decided to put myself under a bit of pressure and to try something a little bit different. I was going to use my podcast as a vehicle to read what I have so far. The idea being that <laughs> if people like it, or if I feel inspired, I will write the rest. I'm pretty sure I'm going to write the rest anyway, you know, but the other part of this is just me getting myself in the mood for, for writing the rest of it. So, without further ado, let's crack on with it. I'm going to do a proper intro now, and I'm going to read you the first chapter of Love and Haste by Andrew Culture. <laughs> Love and Haste by Andrew Colcher Chapter 1 Bill Bacon loved playing tricks on people and he decided a silly thing like his death wasn't going to stop his mischief. As it turns out, his death was rather silly but we'll come to that later. Now this isn't one of those ghostly tales with messages laden with morals from beyond the grave or folk who somehow overcome the obstacle of being dead to hitch lifts with young lovers on darkened roads. There'll be no spilling of blood, not much, or losing of limbs. Some stuff will happen to some folk who'll enjoy it, and there'll be other players in this tale who won't relish the stuff that happens to them quite so much. Such is life. There'll be laughter, loyalty, a little lewdness, and a lot of lovely adventure. Our characters will learn a little more about the world and a lot more about themselves. And maybe you'll learn something new about yourself along the way. But probably not. If you're looking for the sort of story that involves fierce creatures or valiant warriors, then you may not find satisfaction here. Although there is a whale, but his tail is a bit sad and he's a sad whale. Sad whale with a sad tail. And he's not very fierce at all. Some friends of Bill, were you to ask them, 
might say his fascination with fun at the expense of others started at a young age. They definitely would say that if they'd known Bill from a young age, and if they'd been one of the others mentioned. In fact, you could say, and be believed by those in the know, that Bill's passion for jokes of a practical nature was the fault of his parents. And the trouble began the very day Bill Bacon became Bill Bacon, which of course was the day Bill Bacon was born. Now you may think that blaming the parents is pretty presumptuous and a tired cliché, but in Bill's case I can assure you that the blame for Bill's misbehaviour rests with his parents, for they at least sowed the seed of sedition the very day he was born in the USA. Bill's parents, Barry and Betty, had a peculiar sense of humour, and on the happy day their son escaped the confines of the womb and announced his rival on planet Earth with a wee little Wilhelm scream, they set him up with a name he would never live down. Bill's mother's mother was from a country with a peculiar accent, and she pronounced the word baby as bibby. So Baby Bill's begetter decided to play a joke on his mother-in-law and named his newborn baby Bibby. Well, at least he would have done if it wasn't for a stern word from the midwife and a drowsily wagged finger from his wife, Bill's mother, who was somewhat stoned on gas. He still needed convincing, and for a fee a local lawyer was more than willing to be the convincer. The lawyer explained to Bacon Sr that the authorities would not look kindly on a father changing his newborn son's name for the sake of confusing an elderly foreign national with a gossamer thin grasp of the English language. As a compromise, Bill's father settled on Bill as a Christian name, although as this told his tale in past tense I guess you've already figured that out. It would have saved a lot of bother if somebody had pointed out to Barry Bacon that both him and his wife Betty already had BB as their initials. So. The fact Bill's parents were prepared to complicate his life with a silly name for the sake of their own amusement should give you an idea of what the poor blighter was up against as he grew from child to adult. Giving their son the name Bill did backfire a bit on his parents, not least when they had their daily visit from the postman. Bill's father was called Barry, and because his mother was christened Betty, opening mail addressed to B. Bacon was something of a lucky dip. Bill did exact some revenge 18 years after his birth by cashing one of his father's paychecks. It was one of the few jokes Barry never saw the funny side of. Barry Bacon grew up with six boisterous brothers and lamented the fact that his only child was an only child and would never experience the character-building challenges thrown him every day by his own brothers during his upbringing. Despite his peculiarities, Barry Bacon was a loving and devoted father albeit in his own unique way, and he didn't really want his son to miss out on any fun. So as soon as he was old enough to toddle, he played the same pranks on his son that his brothers had played on him. The first practical joke was clink film over the potty, and the last was an apple pie bed on the night of Bill's senior prom. With a heavy heart and paternal pride, Barry watched Bill crawl into bed that night as if finding his bed full of apples, Barry was a very literal man, was nothing out of the ordinary. Barry realised that night that his final trick had been played. If his son was now mature enough to ignore his pranks, then he was truly a man. The truth of the matter was that, being senior prom night, Bill Bacon was loaded on cheap scotch, and apart from some really odd nightmares about apple bobbing, he slept as well in his apple pie bed as he would have done if his father had turned his bed upside down and set it in the bathroom. I only mention the bathroom because setting his son's bed in the bathroom was on Barry Bacon's list of possible pranks. 
and the following morning, as his son cried for a fresh bucket following the prom, he realised that it would have saved a little bit of legwork and a lot of clearing up. Bill wasn't the sort of child who would let his father get away with his constant joking, and from an early age he learned a particular way of retaliating through humour and pedantry detail that would ensure his later success in the business world. Nature didn't make Bill a joker, but a childhood trying to shine past his father's odd sense of humour certainly nurtured the joker within. By the time Bill was in his senior years, and having to think on his feet every time he put on his shoes, and having to check every surface in the house before sitting, leaning, sleeping in, or on it, Bill's wits were sharpened to a razor-like sharpness, and Bill became a young man who was noticed everywhere he went, not just because his father had shaved off his eyebrows as he slept on Halloween. Bill had an incredible gift that allowed him to get into the most terrible trouble at school by playing the most ingenious of pranks and then always charm his way out of the harshest of punishments. The more sceptical of his peers claimed it was because he was on the high school chess team and was the captain of the football team, but the more impressionable of the girls at his school claimed it was because he was just simply a dream. Either way, when it came time for Bill to decide what path to take after high school, several of his teachers encouraged him to go to college. The principal agreed and rang Bill's proud parents to add to the tide of encouragement. Shortly after that call, Bill accidentally caused a steamroller to reshape the rear of the principal's new Buick. So the principal once again called Bill's folks and added the words far, far away to his opinion that their son should attend further education. After some tedious academic to and fro that needn't trouble you, Bill found himself happily enrolled at a college, or to be more precise, in a university. The reason for this connection from college to university is that the institution of learning Bill signed up for was quite far from his home in Massachusetts. In fact, it was quite far from New England altogether. Hell, it wasn't even the same country. Bill Bacon, encouraged in no small way by his long-suffering teachers and the principal with the Buick, went to the University of East Anglia, in the city of Norwich, in the county of Suffolk, in the country of England, in the domain known as the United Kingdom. If you're familiar with the way ancient institutions known as British universities operate, then you'll probably don't know about Freshers Week. Freshers Week is an ancient rite whereby folks who have enrolled in university for the first time, freshers, are encouraged to drink unwise amounts of subsidised alcohol engaged in what could euphemistically be called breaking the ice with their fellow freshers, and generally and enthusiastically lowering their inhibitions. Bill Bacon thought he had died and gone to heaven. And for the first few weeks at university, he lived so closely by the motto, when in Rome, he might as well have had it tattooed on his forehead. As Freshers' Week rolled into the first semester, Bill realised he had no longer any reason to be the Joker of the pack. His accent and his unique outlook on life was enough to get him noticed. And as he knuckled down to study, he found a new love for being appreciated for his intellectual abilities rather than his destructive capabilities. Bill Bacon fell in love with academia, but sadly never fell in love with anyone other than himself. Not a conceited man by nature, Bill gladly accepted the amorous affections of quite a few female students, and once during Rag Week a gentleman caller, but he never found true love. Well, not in a romantic sense anyway. He did not make any firm friendships with both sexes that ever quite blossomed into romance, despite many near misses during happy hour in the student union bar. Within his circle of friends were a young lovesick couple who would later go on to have a son called Sam. 
And while that will mean nothing to you just yet, it will in the future, so store that little nugget of information away in your memory, please. Bill Bacon's time at the University of East Anglia passed largely without any incident worth reporting. Well, nothing apart from just one incident, just after graduation, something he would later only refer to as the unfortunate incident, although it did directly lead to his return to America, and to a lesser extent a return to his prankster ways. Considering how buoyed up with enthusiasm for life Bill was on his return to the US of A, it came as something of a surprise to everyone when he filed a small business startup loan and started a small factory specialising in the manufacture of tiny cardboard boxes. The sort of boxes that might be used to store nuts and bolts, or if you're a teenage girl, the sort of box you might paint pink and film with mementos of a broken heart. The first person Bill hired was the husband of the husband and wife pairing that would go on to have a daughter called Charlie. Just another little nugget for you to file away. The future Charlie father was so inspired by... <laughs> Sorry. Charlie father... The future Charlie father was so inspired by Bill's enthusiasm for his cardboard boxes and his dedication to a pedantic level of detail in all proceedings that he eventually pulled up his socks, moved to Washington DC and started his own tyre balancing concern. Many years later, Bill was a very rich man, but a very lonely man, and the long hours and nights of the cardboard packaging industry demanded of him started to take their toll. The first warning sign that Bill was going a little bit crazy came one sunny Thursday in the bright but devilishly cold Massachusetts winter when he crept into a men's restroom and sealed every urinal with cling film. Later signs of Bill's near-terminal boredom were clearer and more alarming to his accountants. Bill started donating large sums of money to complete strangers, including a particularly delighted shoeshine on Boston Common, who went home from his day's toll with enough cash to pay off his mortgage. And when his accountants advised him against sharing his wealth with strangers, he attempted to share it with the spawn of his old friends, namely Sam and Charlie. See, I told you it was worth remembering those names. Sadly for Sam and Charlie, Bill Bacon hadn't kept in touch with his old friends, Sam and Charlie's parents, and he entirely failed to send them any money. But as much as this story isn't about dangerous creatures, the supernatural, or the spilling of blood, nor is it really about Bill Bacon, this story is about you, the reader. Actually it's not, that would just be daft, and it's not the sort of thing people should be putting in books for other folk to pay good or bad money for. This is a story about Sam and Charlie. And here I am wittering on about them, and you haven't even met them yet. How rude of me. So now that I've told you a list of things that this tale isn't about, and now that you've met Bill Bacon, I guess I should probably introduce you to a couple of new friends. Sorry to interrupt and talk over the pretty music, um, which I made, but I just want to explain that if you've heard this podcast and enjoyed it, then please subscribe and please do all the rating and, and all that stuff that everyone tells everyone to do these days. I thought it might be worth explaining as well that my podcast comes in two flavours. You've just heard season two, which is me reading a novel, so obviously listen to it in order if you want it to make more sense than it would do if you didn't. The other flavour, season one, runs concurrently and is based on mostly interviews and conversations with inspiring and interesting people with interesting things to say. So subscribe and you get both flavours. How good is that? 
Right, please like, subscribe, and all the stuff that every other podcast host in the world asks you to do. I know everyone asks you to do it, but it's because it makes a huge difference. If you enjoy this, then just please tell people. Please have a look at my alarmingly crappy website at andrewculture.com. I should also point out it's deliberately crappy. I'm, I do this stuff professionally, so it's my own odd sense of humor. Anyway, I'm just rattling on about a ton of crap now. Let's put the pretty music back on for a second.